Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. We continue this week with our series looking at native breeds to Britain and this week turn our attentions to the Aberdeen Angus breed. There have been a number of works written about the history of the Aberdeen Angus cattle and particularly around the speculation of why they are polled and Charles Darwin couldn't even hang his hat on that one. Uh, I'm joined this week by two Angus breeders, one whose family have been involved with the breed for more than 60 years, uh, Marion Tilson from the from Wedderley in the Borders. Hi, Marion. Hi, Andy, and um, delighted to be on it. Thank you very much. Good. And uh, also we have Nigel Hamill, a more recent breeder, improver and enthusiast, although uh, retired now, Nigel, more or less. Yes, unfortunately, the Badgers won, and... Uh... TB's become so serious we had to pack in. But thank you for having me on the show. Great. Well, that's nice to have you both there. And and some say the Angus cattle came over with the Romans and others that it might have been the Vikings that brought them across the water from Scandinavia. One thing that there seems to be a common consensus on is that these cattle weren't very big, and certainly in the early days, with the assumption that mature animals were not much over... Uh, 100 centimetres tall, th- three feet, uh, and um, weighed little over 200 kilograms. Uh, their structure was thought to be directly related to the poorer land and the climate in which they, they evolved in North Scotland. However, the first real reference to them was in the Code Macaplan, which was a document drawn up in 846 in Schoon Palace. Uh, we know a history lesson to help govern the newly found Caledonia, which of course became Scotland, and uh, they needed um, needed governing because they were quite an unruly bunch back then, Marion. Uh, yes, I think we were just probably repelling the English, and we probably still are quite unruly, aren't we? <laughs> Good answer, <laughs> indeed. And uh, there's some. Um, Quite a lot of muddy water around those early origins, though, and maybe a lot of speculation and perhaps not enough evidence. But uh, in that document, there were references to the, the humilit, um, which is thought to refer to the hornless cattle. And likewise, the words homil and humil and humby appear in later works, as well as the, the dodded and the doddies. And derivatives of these words became the Angus doddy and the buck and humby um, sometime in in the mid-18th century from which is understood that the Aberdeen Angus breed evolved and that's a fairly quick potted history Nigel is that about right? Um, yeah some of those terms I'm not familiar with but I am familiar with the Humbee and the Doddies. And from history we hear that strong black polled cattle had been bred at Kinnaird Castle under of course the famous Carnegie family in the early part of the 19th century and it's widely recognised that when Hugh Watson took over Keeler Farm he started with five animals from Kinnaird and set about breeding larger framed beasts to graze the harder northeastern lands and it's initially thought that not all of these were homogeneously black and such as the famed bull of course grey-breasted jock who uh, who bred a son old jock who went on to be number one in the herd book some 30 years later and he takes the credit i suppose marion from being the start of it all this old jock uh, very much and uh, the you know pedigrees that you see written out all trace back to that and we assume that the our destiny mark uh, although i think nigel calls it is it a jack mark or jock mark the jock. Um, it, 
jock mark that may have come from the grey-breasted jock. There are dusty markets like a ring of grey hairs uh, anywhere on the animal, can be on the face, the side or uh, hindquarter, and it's still quite common today. Uh, we quite often have it on uh, some of our cattle all the way down uh, after those years. I find that fascinating that uh, one small trait can be so genetically powerful that it can survive 200 years of, of evolution. Uh, but of course, in my uh, days gone by, I probably would have invented a product that would have covered up uh, any white blemishes, uh, legally or otherwise. Anyway, moving along. Although Watson is widely recognized as the father of the breed, there have been some contentions that claim that uh, William McCombie from Tilly 4 also laid claims to that title, and as he not only improved the cattle, but uh, promoted them to the hilt as well, dragging beasts as far away as Paris Exhibition uh, on, his, on his quest to get everybody to see them. And that'd be some trip back then, wouldn't it? By, by float and then by train, by boat, Nigel, you've, you've done a lot of traveling. Uh, wouldn't be easy taking a two-ton bull in your luggage, would it? No, um, and I have great admiration for them taking that uh, initiative uh, and also winning the Paris Trophy, which uh, is available to see in Pedigree House, the headquarters of the Aberdeen Angus Association. Incredible. And of course, he would be up against the, the Shorton, who also would have traveled there, but he'd be up against a lot of these big uh, French breeds of the time as well, and and would have been an interesting show to be at, wouldn't it? And just moving on then, as I said, the exact origins of the breed have been questioned a little bit by some academics, I suppose we call them, particularly the Shorton breeders who claim that uh, that their breed had a hand in the improvement process of, of the Angus. And Indeed, McCombie did have a herd of pure shorthorns as well, can't be denied. And uh, more muddy waters uh, here or a taboo subject, Marion? Not, not in the slightest. Um, I think it's so well accepted now, but it just um, what breeds uh, were used when they had a huge uh, chase after size. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose there's a whole subject here which some animals have been used I, I recently talked to shorthorn breeders and, and the, the influx of the main Andrew which was used if I dare call it honestly and, 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 and recorded in the pedigrees and then bred out and likewise they bred the limousines into some other native breeds and such like and, and it's very hard though to, to breed something into an Angus when it's modestly polled and it's the only it's the only breed that is and I suppose I couldn't comment on that I'm afraid <laughs> I like to be controversial on this um podcast but i think we've probably taken that one close to the wire there so let's just move on and following the processes laid down by the great robert bakewell who features a lot in in this recent series some hundred years earlier mccombie would have experimented with breeding only from the very best of the cattle that he had and then breeding them inwards to to fix the type and uh, this has been discussed uh, many times now and it's pretty much how the best breeds came to the fore nigel isn't it they bred everything close to see what was there and uh, could be a dangerous game that Yes, um, if it worked, it was called line breeding, and if it didn't work, it was called inbreeding, and they were a, a disaster. From nowadays, of course, if you had two or three hundred animals to do that with, you could afford a few casualties, knowing that you were going to get the one in amongst there that would make up the slack. But uh, a lot of these guys with small herds there, it, would, it could destroy you know, a generation of cattle if they got it wrong. Yeah, uh, I guess so. And uh, as we said earlier, we're filled with admiration for these early pioneers. Mm -hmm. 
And and you mentioned the pioneers. The next name on the team sheet of those early improvers would be George McPherson Grant, who uh, took over the running of Ballandalek Estate when he was just 21 years old. Uh, and immediately he purchased some uh, canard animals and once again setting out to improve and promote them throughout the land. And I think he made that uh, trip to Paris as well. And Ballandalek Castle still has a herd of Angus to this day, although they had a short time uh, without them, making them to, or certainly cementing their claim to be uh, the oldest Angus herd in the world. And from Ballandalek, of course, comes the great Erica family, or the family of Ericas, should I say, and still a backbone in the breed today. And I think uh, both of you would agree with that, and both of you have probably uh, bred Ericas through your own herds. Uh, very much so. Um, well, our first ones were Royal Ericas, um, Prides and Kindness Prides. And, and later Nell of Oldbar, but uh, so many uh, went back to Erica's um, absolute foundation of the breed. We, we actually never had any female Erica's, but a couple of the bulls that were used were descendants of the Duan Erica line. And be called Eric, probably, were they? Yes. <laughs> And we're, again, we were discussing this uh, recently with uh, some other breeds, and the nice thing about the native breeds is that they did try and keep that uh, that family name down through the females and the bulls, so you could see the families going back, whereas, of course, when the Continentals came in, it was all about a letter referring to the, the year of its age in the herd book. So uh, the, the importance of female families can't, can't be overstated, can it? Yes, I totally agree with you. And um, even now worldwide there are certain female lines which are predictably better than others and they would say that that's very unscientific because of course we should be breeding on figures but um some of us breeding for a long time very much go by the families and the, keeping the damn line yes, i'm glad that we're not being controversial on this podcast <laughs> we, we will raise that one again in a minute um and the first herd book appeared in 1862, just 80 animals entered in that one, and uh, even some of those have since been brought into question with one or two of the early copies of the herd book containing hand-scribbled notes next to the entries, and in some cases dates being corrected where offspring appear to be older than their parents, and, and it's quite possible that the herdsmen uh, would be charged with filling in this information of sires as well as birth dates uh, and Nigel and perhaps a lot of these guys couldn't write. I would imagine that's very true but um, I, I think we have to take it as face value because that's so long ago now um, that we've moved on from there and the herd book has maintained its integrity very well over 150 years. Mm -hmm you said a brilliant record for everybody to refer back to and I know a lot of the older breeders probably yourself included Mary not you personally older but uh, we'll have a, a copy of every single one of those herd books on the shelf uh, um, somewhere and it's also noted that the herd book was shared with the Galloway breed from the southwest of Scotland to start with a collaboration which went on for uh, over 20 years I think and I suppose back then it would be quite difficult to separate the blurred lines between the two breeds. Very similar breeds, uh, Marion, from different areas, but similar makeup. No DNA testing back then. Do you think there would have been a bit of crossover between the Angus and the Galloway, or have they always had a, a, a stick in the sand? I'm assuming that there would have been. Um, there's obviously one bull later on that um, suggested it might have had more Galloway in it, but I presume they... Uh, diverged in their selection for the area they were in, that Galloway became slightly smaller and 
definitely more hair. Mm-hmm. More hair and standing the wet, wet weather. And Nigel, I believe you bred Galloways as well, didn't you? Yes, and uh, I, in fact, they were my favourite breed to start with. <laughs> you can't say that on this uh, programme. You're on the wrong line. It's all right. I'll explain <laughs> later. Um, but I, I, my understanding was that they were all referred to as Scotch black polled cattle, and they were basically um, just completely messed up. There was no DNA separation that you could probably get from that. And they, as Marion quite rightly said, they seemed to evolve with smaller, hairy black cattle uh, suited to the wet conditions of the West uh, and the moorlands. And the larger, smoother-haired cattle which which evolved and became the Aberdeen Angus side of that group. By the turn of the 20th century, uh, Fraser's Mart at Perth, of course, had become the centre for the sales of Angus bulls, and this association grew steadily up till the late 60s, when up to a 1,000 Angus bulls would have been sold in the sale each year. And in fact, the bulls were judged out on the street up until uh, 1949, and that would have been some sight, wouldn't it? And a, a fair judging stint that'd take two days, I think three days at, at one time, until... Uh, Bob Adam eventually broke that mould and did it in a one and finished in time for tea. But that would have been a, a fantastic sight to see a thousand bulls in, in, in the mart going back the way, Marion. Uh, it must have been quite incredible, but I'm assuming that the way of judging would be slightly um, shorter than we do now. You wouldn't have the stop in a corner, walk towards you, and all from that side. I think it would be more a pull in from the uh, side but how they fit, fitted in all those um, classes and then came together for championships, things was quite amazing. And they were huge classes too, weren't they? Yes. And by the turn of the century, we start looking at some more individual breeders and uh, one man came to the fore, really, one J. Ernest Kerr of Harveston. And... Uh, an incredibly clever man who started breeding rabbits as a schoolboy in, in, in Loretto School and eventually ruled the Angus breed, possibly for nigh on 60 years. And he's been discussed in an earlier uh, Top Lines and Tail podcast, uh, podcast number 13, if you want to look that up. And it was a purchase of Joanna Erica of Seafield uh, in 1905 that provided the strongest family that the breed had seen. And uh, her records themselves could fill half a book with the championships they went on and, and won at uh, the, the Highland and other shows. And again, using inbreeding techniques laid down by his forefathers, uh, he'd set about and fix a type in that family that just about everybody wanted a piece of, didn't they? And I believe Harveston would still hold just about every record in the book when it came to the Highland show and Angus and, and, and throughout a number of breeds. Uh, his 12 times Perth champion, might just have been surpassed recently by Bleelak, I believe, but uh, we'll mention later. But uh, Marion Kerr, was, was, he was some man, wasn't he? Um, yeah, it's quite in- incredible how so much is uh, due to him uh, from the success of our breed. Uh, but again, you, we're talking about uh, used inbreeding, uh, which was a sort of line breeding thing, and that would have been followed on by Bob Adam and uh, a lot of the so-called master breeders. Uh, afterwards. Not just in the black breed, of course. His oppo, if you like, would have been um, 
uh, Captain De Quincey in, in the Hereford is a similar breeder, but both these men went on and didn't just breed Angus, they bred Shorthorns and they bred dogs and Budgergars and Orchids and uh, and all sorts of things, as, as has been mentioned. And the Breed Society went through a number of um, secretaries to start with. We had Alex, Alexander Ramsey in the, in the first herd book. And in 1909, we had James Barclay, and in 1944, that changed to Alexander Keith. And between the two of these, of course, they wrote uh, the history of the breed up to... 1957, and uh, I think that's that's given us all a lot of insight in, into what went on. Very, very in-depth, wasn't it? And copies of the Barclay and Keith book are available at great expense if anybody wants to find them. I'm sure you both of you have those, and uh, it's a good read, that, isn't it? Uh, incredible, complicated, um, very in-depth uh, reading. It takes sort of like one day at a time to try and uh, absorb all the detail that we had, and it's amazing. I'm afraid I have to confess that I don't have a copy. <laughs> They're for sale. Nigel. For sale at auction. Last one I think made £160, Nigel, so you better sharpen your pencil there. Right. <laughs> Other secretaries came after them, of course, in, in a succession, and uh, we mentioned recently uh, Captain Ben Coots being there, and of course the uh, uh, involvement of the very knowledgeable Eddie Galanders in amongst that there, who's been an absolute mine of information for, for all of us, uh, and likewise uh, Bob Anderson being secretary, and, and of course later the directorship of uh, Ron McHattie, for whom I had a, a great respect, so there's been some great men at the helm. And by the time we get into the 50s, it was the turn of the rich and famous to get into the Angus breed. And in fact, I re remember chatting to Roly Fraser and him uh, telling me that in the 30s and the 40s, if you wanted to be someone, you had to have a herd of shorthorns. And after the war, it became uh, Angus that attracted the, those headlines, Nigel, didn't it? It was, it was fashionable to be an Angus breeder. I believe so. Um, but I would take issue with one of the things you said, and um, that towards the end of the 50s, Two of the most prominent breeders, John Arnott and Tom, Tom yep, uh, at Eastfield, would not be classed as rich men. Oh, I agree with you, Nigel. I'm not saying that all the breeders were wealthy men. What I'm more saying is that uh, the money that got involved in the breed attracted a lot of uh, wealthy people in there, perhaps for reasons of glory. No, those two, those two became pretty wealthy as a result of their success. Sure. William Donald would would be one such man, uncle of Jim Donald, grandfather of Angus, of course, originally a banker, and he started the Gairdrew herd in the late 1920s, and from the outset he'd be firmly focused on the on the export market, as a lot of them were, and along came a bull that probably had more influence on the pedigree Angus market than any other, a bull called Keystone of Denaira, costing just 58 guineas in 1940, when you know some of these bulls were making in the thousands, that was a cheap bull, and Gairdrew would have two main families, Black Bettys and Black Besses, and from these two lines, and using just two sires, first Keystone and then a grandson of his, Caesar of Rowley, uh, Gairdrew were pretty much at the top in the breed for a decade, and in fact, until William died in, in 1950, and Keystone would have a, a massive influence, uh, Marion, but his main attribute really was he was uh, he was shorter in the leg, wasn't he? He was one of the shorter bulls, some could say, that maybe the start of, of the rot, as it were. Um, probably chasing the uh, market, and he must have been one of the first um, to have uh, realised how to do it. Um, I'm probably less uh, familiar with all the offspring of that, although... Um, that was one that uh, had the Galloway Association say no more. 
<laughs> a shorter cannon bone, maybe that's where it came from. They did say he had a shorter cannon bone, but certainly he did a lot for the breed because they were looking for these these smaller cattle. So uh, we're uh, treading on a few toes this afternoon, Marion. I hope uh, you keep the engine running. <laughs> And of course, this attraction and these high prices uh, was spurred by the export market to South America and particularly to uh, to North America. And as seems customary now with our, our native breeds podcast at the moment, we talk about the exports into the USA. And we have our good friend, uh, Dr. Bob, that's just going to give me a, a quick a bit of a history on how the Angus suddenly took over domination in, in the USA. Well, Angus were really the latest breed to come here by far, but boy, they really had a, a pretty quick impact because the first one came in in 1872, but by 1888, there was a, a steer called Dot, and he was called Dot because he had really bad markings. He had a lot of white on him, but we had been into these aged steers that were three years old and a ton and more, and he was a two-year-old, early maturing, blocky, uh, completely different type of, of steer. And when he won, he it brought in the age of what we call baby beef. And we stayed on that track all the way up until we got kind of crazy in the belt buckle cattle after World War II. And so, I mean, he, he, he was a whole wave of, of a type change. So, and Angus dominated from that point forward in, in our stock shows, uh, fat stock shows. On, on that type change alone, Angus had such a huge impact uh, on our, our industry that it's, it can't be overstated. And Bob, you and I have discussed the Angus history on ever so many podcasts here now and the great men that have bred Angus on your side of the water. And uh, I think we'll leave it at that. But uh, Bob, I really appreciate your help as always. Uh, your input is always most uh, most interesting and fascinating. Thank you. Uh, great. Uh, and it was... Uh, industry money that backed another entrepreneur of the 50s, uh, William Roots, whose car makes such as, such as Hillman and Humber and Sunbeam, Talbot and Comma, who of course would later go on and form the Chrysler Group. Having brought a 3,000 acre estate in Hungerford, his stipe herd would uh, later relocate to Glen Almond in Perthshire with some expensive foundation cows and the later addition of Urvalax of Harveston in 1945. Stipe picked up the champion and the reserve in Perth in 1951 and was claimed to be the first English animal to do so. But uh, it wasn't really English, so Nigel, was he? Not like not like you and I? No. <laughs> um, just a little bit of a rebound in, in the other direction. And other millionaire moguls such as Robert Weems Honeymoon, who was a textile magnate with his Dirkluck herd, and the large-scale post-war property developer Sir Harold Samuels, who had the witch cross herd and made a fortune when he rebuilt half of southern England after the war. And, of course, Osmond's uh, veterinary group, who had the Barnalby herd uh, very ably managed by uh, Albert Retty. And some various others would pour money into the Aberdeen Angus cattle and, and they'd reap some rewards back, but virtually tax-free. In fact, it's probably the taxman that drove a lot of, of business down the cattle route during those times when agricultural produce was taxed at... 8% rather than 80 or 90% that would be seen at the top end of the finance market. And uh, is that why you went into to, to pedigree cattle, Nigel, as, as a tax dodger? No, sadly not. But I think if those tax rates had been prevalent today, Neil Massey would be smiling today. <laughs> um, but um, ironically, that started me off was two females from 
Honeyman's daughter, Elizabeth, the Balettenherd. Yep. <laughs> Certainly, yes, she did go on to be a, a prevalent breeder. And you're right, Nigel, and I believe she went on to break the, the, the breed record herself with a Balletten bull at, uh, at 40,000. And a few others that we should mentioned during that time Kanda Craig from the Wallace family in Strathdon who who also broke the breed record with Jumbus Eric uh, of Kanda Craig from for, at 33,000 in, in 1960. Uh, Kinermany of course was taken over by Lord Sainsbury's of the Sainsbury's group in the mid 20th century and uh, they went on to be a very powerful herd. The Templeton brothers uh, your uh, neck of the woods um, um, are in the Templeton Brothers at Sandy now um, and Charterhouse, both of whom Tom and Matthew had uh, successful herds. Um, Donny Allen of Ballantom, Alan Grant of the Thorn. There's, there's just a few names north of the border, and one could add dozens more, uh, as well as of course plenty of dominant herds in uh, in England and of course Ireland. And it could be said that Care's natural successor at the top, I mentioned it earlier, um, Marion, would be Bob Adam at Newhouse, who started with only two female families and added another female then from the Joanna Erica family from, from the Kerr's dispersal at uh, a princely sum of £5,000, which uh, back in 1960 was raised a few headlines. And Newhouse then ruled the breed right up until the middle 60s, breaking most of the records that Kerr had set. And again, we've profiled him on episode 12 of Top Lines and Tales. And a phenomenal man, uh, Marion. It was like a roadmap. He almost he knew exactly what he was doing right from the outset, didn't he? Absolutely incredible and so well respected. And, uh, you know, anyone loved going to see them. And the story was if he came round to see your uh, bulls, you know, pre-sales, uh, it was really had to be quite an event. But the main thing was that if he made no comment on, on the cattle, you'd actually say, nice draw you've got. <laughs> so you knew <laughs> that it wasn't, but uh, he was an amazing man. And, um, you know, we had a lot of uh, Newhouse bulls, including the Dueros, Eric one, that went to New Zealand. Okay, we'll come on to your own uh, herd um, shortly. And yes, he was an, an incredible man and, and, and liked by a lot of people. And as you said, uh, good with people as well. And, but, and, and a man just to just he seemed to have it just sorted out right from the get-go another well-known and long-lived angus herd was we mentioned earlier on was that of tom brewis of eastfield which uh, again is still on the go today and starting with a few meager purchases including a bull that cost a 150 guineas and um, nigel alluded to it earlier on that he, he wasn't a, a wealthy man when he went into this trade but he sold Elevate of Eastfield to USA in 1959 for the the grand sum of 25,000 guineas, and uh, I sat with you in one day, and they said that they'd later they'd worked that out back then that that could have bought you 200 tractors for that amount, which is uh, no mean sum if translated into today's money. That's for sure, and uh, it would bought plenty of uh, of borders land back then, though I guess, and and and, it, and he did, Marion. Um, yeah, it's never really mentioned that. Um... Tom bought two of our heifers, Evening Bell and Ellie. Uh, Evening Bell was the mother of Elevate, and Ellie was the mother of Elation that also went to, um, I think, America, but at a much reduced price. Apologies, Marion, I was aware of that fact, actually, and uh, it's, uh, excuse me for excluding you in that uh, great feat. Can I just mention that also that um, the bull that you alluded to for 150 guineas, was, um, as I understand, bought from Drew Adam, Newhouse, Edwin Erison, 
but it was told at Aberdeen because it was considered that its ears were too small for Perth. That's right, I've heard that story. Yeah, so that's why he was sent to Aberdeen out of the way, and and, and uh, Tom, knowing what he knew, picked him out, and uh, yeah, <laughs> smart move it was. Indeed, yeah. And of course, all along the main attraction to the breed wasn't just the winning, but fulfilling the export market to the Americas, and uh, during that decade, there were a lot of record-breaking cattle each year throwing up a new story and some more headlines and but it would be hard for the uk breeders to get the sires that they wanted perhaps nigel would, would they be selling all the good stuff away or would, or were the export people buying a different bull to the ones that we needed at home well my understanding was that many close relatives of the very high priced bulls would be sold at perth for meager sums and would be very very closely bred to the ones which were fetching in the 50s and 60s so i think that there was an opportunity for british breeders to buy what they wanted as well okay. even though they miss out on the two or three headline figures okay i think the headlines were certainly what some of the some of the wealthier people wanted to spend headlines buying a bull was as, for them as good as headlines selling a bull as long as they got the name on the front page maybe i'm being harsh there i've told the story of jack Dick and Blackwatch Farms in a novel that I wrote some years ago, including some of his underhanded dealings and Ponzi schemes. But there were quite a few others coming in as well with with similar money to spend. Uh, but maybe the story behind the famed bull in Dirtus of Vols hasn't yet made it onto the, to these airways anyway, so I'm going to relate it as I heard it. And um, the bull was bred by Sir Torquil Munro of the Munro family, of course, who founded the Munro, the, the mountains in Scotland. Um, and Evolse was born in 1962 and was, by all accounts, a damn good calf. And after Bob Adam giving him a first prize in Perth in February 1963, rumour has it that Bob and Alan Grant offered John Rugg, who was herd manager there, and of course, father of Bert Rugg, uh, 10,000 for him and I remember asking Drew why if they liked the bull so much why didn't he make him champion and Drew said uh, he simply wasn't old enough which I thought was a fair enough answer didn't you <laughs> anyway when that was turned down it was fairly evident that the price would fly and, and fly it did to 60,000 guineas a world record for any animal then and uh, a UK breed record that stood for a very long time and, of course, that was knocked down to Blackwatch Farms and Jack Dick. But his story didn't stop there because in my book, um, Cash Cow, I relayed the tale of, of how the bull arrived to a fanfare in New York, only to be found infertile. And being the smart man that Jack Dick was, he reclaimed the purchase price of the bull, all 63000 of it, back on his insurance premium, and then uh, set up yet another publicity stunt after he bought the bull back for just $1.00 and then tried surgery to get the bull fertile again. It never worked, but uh, it sure put Dick's money-making scheme on all the front pages all around the world. To me, the most fascinating part of this story, and, and Nigel alluded to just now, is that the, the bull's stablemate, exactly the same way, more or less the same way bred anyway, made just 180 guineas in the same sale. Um, it's, a, it's a great story, Nigel, isn't it? But uh, it probably shows just how far removed the breed had got from the, from the commercial purpose. Yes, and uh, that's what I alluded to before, that it was possible for British breeders to buy similar genetics to the ones that were making the headline prices. But of course, they weren't all uh, duds, and uh, 
it's worth mentioning that the reserve champion in the same sale from uh, Arnott's of Haymount, uh, uh, Mitre of Haymount, uh, he went on and, and did some good too. Was reserve champion, sold to the USA um, for a decent sum of money, but after that was grand champion at Chicago in 1960 and resold in the US for $300,000 and was sire of the year in the United States. Um, and it didn't make those headlines. So th there are two or three others. And of course, there's Jumbo Eric of Kanda Craig that went to the Argentine in 62 for 33,000. So there were other herds getting in on the act, as it were. Certainly there were, and, and it'd be nice to mention them all. But you're right in mentioning a mitre of... of uh, of Haymount because he did go on and, and, and achieve great things in in amongst the, the Aberdeen Angus circles and um, some of this again has been documented in, in previous podcasts but yes he, he certainly left his mark on the Chicago exhibition another top herd that held their place in history is Duneside from the McRobert family at Tarland the herd was started in 1923 on the 14,000 acre estate in Aberdeenshire Lady McRobert, an American, lost her eldest son in an air crash aged just 26. And sadly, her other two sons met the same fate during the war, one flying a hurricane, the other one in the Blenheim. And when she died in 1954, the farm was left in trust, and it still ran today, I think. And in 1956, uh, the herd sire Stipe editor was bought for 17,000. He was added to the herd, and from there the females started to come that helped Duneside dominate Perth in, in, in the later later in the sixties. Then under the guidance of Bill Shand with the legendary stockman Henry Durwood bringing out uh, the cattle and they often traded genetics with Newhouse uh, and the highlight would hold the second top price in history for many years when in 1964 they sold Essadium of Duneside to Blackwatch Farms again for 54,000 and incidentally Lynn Dirtis of Vols was out of a Duneside cow line. Uh, another great herd of Marion. Absolutely amazing, and uh, their uh, effects through the breed was extraordinary. But I think at one stage, one of the Perth, did they not have five championships? Uh, would be in the mid sixties. Certainly, they were they were hard to beat, weren't they? Likewise, the buying power of the Leachman brothers featured in an episode eleven on, on this podcast. So well, we'll skirt around those only to say that they were a, a phenomenal pair of brothers that uh, again took a lot of good cattle out of Scotland and, and turned them into money in the US uh, didn't they Nigel? Um, yes, uh, well done them and of course their influence is, is still very much felt around the world in um, Australia, New Zealand as well as the United States. Can I just uh, add that um, I worked and or stayed with Paul Good and so visited Ankeny and met both the brothers and of course they were over here as well um, and I also saw I think it would be president of um, Ankeny at Chicago uh -huh. so I really loved that uh, podcast of them so interesting because I knew so many of the people sure. and what, what what like people were they the, the two Leachman brothers obviously good at their job were, were they amiable uh, a couple of fellas uh, very uh, very interesting uh, very sociable, just uh, very nice, um, unassuming uh, brothers compared to the achievements that they'd had. Mm. 
certainly they, they, the achievements would uh, would be hard to get by in, in any breed anywhere in the world I think they certainly uh, they held a place marker there um, if we move on now to uh, 1966 that was a year not to be forgotten uh, Nigel two pretty good goals from Jeff Hurster yeah and um, we thought it was all over and it nearly was because that was really when the decline of the Angus was starting to be felt. You're right, and, and we're talking, of course, about foot and mouth, and the foot and mouth in itself, I don't think the 66 outbreak was as severe as the one we, of course, remember back in, uh, in 2001, but it was devastating for the world cattle export market, which dried up pretty much overnight, and no animals being shipped abroad left us with a lot of the cattle that, uh, that they wanted, and Perhaps that wasn't what what we wanted, uh, Marion. Not in a commercial sense, anyway. Uh, not not in the commercial sense, but in a way, um, it certainly concentrated uh, our minds on what was required and uh, on the home market, which probably is the basis of uh, all markets has to start the commercial. Sure, and I think there was a little bit of an eye off the ball there and by the early 70s it really should have started to sort the, the breeders out from those who are just in it for the money but the, the smart ones had other fish to fry didn't they just at that time the, the likes of Newhouse and others switched their allegiance to the, the Charolais and later the Limousins and a lot of the brains went out of the breed and uh, uh, left it a little bit uh, high and dry for a while Nigel um, Yes indeed and I think uh, if many people's minds will go back to the intervention buying in those days and the the intervention stores would buy up excess beef. So they were paid on weight rather than quality and hence the demand for the bigger cattle. Um, you know, if, if you were breeding for beef, you could get more money by sticking your stuff in intervention than selling it to the local butcher. Everything was going against them at the same time, wasn't it? And it's uh, yeah. circumstantial, I suppose. But there still has to be a, a little bit of responsibility taken by some of these breeders who, who were chasing a, a market without um, without thinking through the consequences of what happened if it went away. Um, chasing the money, if you like. But some of them did stay the course, and it would it would be the appointment by Boots Pure Drug Company of Dave Smith that would get the name of Westrums forward and particularly with the more traditional cattle. And Smithy was profiled on another one of our podcasts and needs no introduction. Safe to say he was never far from the top in the next three decades under four different prefixes. But, uh, of course, Westrom's also had the great Jerry Rankin, whose uncle, uh, Bertie Marshall, had been a fantastic short-horn breeder. So between them, the Westrom's were were a hard herd to beat. And um, as my father would say, uh, Davy Smith was a man and a half, Marion. Very much so. Everyone knew him um, exceedingly well. What a reputation, uh, but it comes out in your podcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And before the breeders started looking overseas for genetics, there were a few other traditional bulls that did make their mark during those uh, those times. One uh, bull, Evesund of Duplin, has been mentioned, I think, when we did the podcast on Davy Smith, a very influential bull, a good square, well-built traditional type of bull. Uh, Rambler of Newcroft was uh, bought by the McLaren brothers of uh, Bankhead and Class Lockie in 1968, and he was said to be a, you know, a much bigger bull amongst his peers, I think a first prize winner, and uh, bred by William Miller in a small herd in uh, near Elgin, but uh, he was a big heavy bull and um, and full of confirmation, uh, quite different to, to other bulls that were available at the time. 
and subsequently he went on and bred exceptionally well and a lot of his offsprings were were quickly in demand and then they they bought a an Irish bull called um, Rocky of Woodview which was bred by the uh, Walter Short because the great cattle dresser Walter Short um, uh, he he was all Irish breeding that guy and um, I think he uh, he was first prize in his class and they bought him for 11,000 good bulls would be very scarce around about that time wouldn't they I, th- I think it was probably uh, breeders um, had much or far fewer cows and trying to find a bull that um, really would uh, help what market they were looking for. And perhaps uh, we didn't always know where the market was and what actually was required. And, and uh, as you said, there'll be less Angus about in general for those ones that did stick to it. Uh, high quality shoes would provide the finance for a man called Keith Bromley's Ashley herd. Russell Bromley's shoes, of course, and another herd that stuck with it through that decade, I think. Which was then sold to Gamel and uh, Cormac in 1976. And they took it on very successfully. And as the mid-80s arrived, the, the rare breed list beckoned. And uh, did they make it onto that list, uh, Marion? I know the short ones did. Uh, no, we didn't. Although we were teased that, yes, maybe we should or else start breeding Labradors. <laughs> Actually, in, it was 1986 when the registrations got to their lowest, when there were just 2,600 Angus calves registered in the herd book. However, it wasn't all uh, gloom, and um, one man, a Glasgow industrialist called John Graham, uh, on a trip to Canada in 1973, saw the future, uh, or at least certainly the start of it anyway, and he was so impressed with Frank Slazina's exhibits at the Toronto Winter Fair that he purchased the whole show team in one go from the Southholm herd, and uh, these would be the first of many females that came in from Canada, and uh, there were some damn good cattle there, weren't they, Marion? I've seen the photographs. Uh, very good cattle and, and really did a lot of good and made people sit up and uh, look at those um, new cattle. Um, also, maybe at that time, uh, when did Genus uh, Scotland bring in the New Zealand bulls? That would be a few years later in uh, 1977. There was Fraser of Stern, um, Armstrong of Akateo and Ateohu bull, and Fraser of Stern went on did very well. Moving on, a few smart men started to see the way forward, and uh, four in particular, I would say, that uh, carried on uh, with the improvements and possibly changed the course of history, and and I'll name them possibly as uh, Sir John Moores, uh, Willie McLaren, Neil Massey, and Tom Brewis, and also possibly, we could tag on there, Willie Robertson, and... And uh, George Cormack, of course, uh, at Ashley. And then, of course, some of the more traditional breeders started to take a bit of notice uh, of what was going on. And uh, a lot of uh, herds changed their ways and and, uh, and started looking in, in a different direction. And it wouldn't be unfair to, to maybe include yourselves, uh, Marion Wedley there and, and the Haymount and uh, yeah, you, the, the, the people producing for that commercial market. Um, yes, if you can say that um, <coughs> we took notice, we, we just carried on uh, breeding, maybe as our market uh, dictated. Um, and uh, George Cormack certainly did uh, a lot of work, and he brought in a lot of the um, Canadian ones as well. Mm-hmm. He did, and Marion, your father and mother Jock and Jenny Campbell took over Wedderley in 
1964, is that right? And, and they'd run the herd quite commercially. Your father, I think, was president in 1976, in the year of the forum. So can you talk me a little bit of, a, of the beginnings of the Wedley herd, uh, please? We'll go on to some of the more recent stuff in another episode. It was actually a lot uh, earlier than that. Um, it started in uh, 1914 uh, at Wedderley, and um, my grandfather, who funnily enough was mentioned in your podcast to the Elliots, um, was uh, Captain Elliot. Yes. Uh, he was my mother's father, um, who uh, had um, cattle of his own and quite a lot of the Nell of Oldbar family, which I mentioned. And he bought uh, Wedderley for his uh, son, who was killed at the end of the war. So that's how my mother got it. And um, so we've sort of, um, my grandfather died in 53, so uh, dad took over then. And uh, yes, he was president in uh, the forum year was 76. And he was chairman of the Highland that same year. And then, well, John was president in 96. I was president in 2004, something like that. Five. Five, was it? I think so, because I was six. <laughs> well, thanks for that. As I said, I think we'll we'll come on to to your herd in more recent times when we when we turn the corner into episode two of this podcast uh, when we look at the more recent. Of course, another breed who've been there in amongst the commercials and great breeders of all of, of sheep nowadays, as well as Angus. Of course, is the Arnots at Haymount, and they've got a, a dynasty in the Angus breed for, for four or five generations, haven't they? Uh, very much so. Um, I think it would be 1936 they started, and um, they really were the go-to breed at um, that stage um, thereafter. And I think in the 50s, 60s, um, they sold everywhere, and there were always competition for us in the borders. Um, people would always go to a, a Haymount Bull. They had such a reputation, and they did so well. Uh, first with John, um, they also had a visit from the Queen, uh, and then Billy carried on, and now Tom and um, his sons, uh, who have gone to be on to be so successful with their Texels. They have they certainly topped the breed sales this year with what looked like a, a superb lamb, and I suppose that cements what we said in a few other podcasts that, of course, great breeders can breed anything. And behind this, uh, the, should I say, the older breeders uh, uh, re reviving the, their interest in the breed came a new wave of breeders such as Bob Lane, um, David Walker and Nigel Hamill. Nigel, uh, what attracted you to the breed and, and when did you get into it? I got into it uh, in 89 and what attracted to me to the breed was that I couldn't afford Galloways because the Germans were spending far too much money on them. And uh, I as you're probably aware, my background was in marketing, and when I did a bit of research, it was quite clear that uh, the Aberdeen Angus brand awareness worldwide for meat quality, um, which would indicate a future market. And females were very cheap. I could buy the best Angus heifers for seven or eight hundred pounds, and I needed grass finishers for our system. So it was a toss-up between the two breeds, and it came down to basically a brand, marketing, 
and finance and that's what got me into the Angus breed. So now we have with yourself we now have a number of enthusiasts and now we arrive at a time where the Aberdeen Angus breed is looking in a very positive uh, and forward-thinking direction and the evolution really began didn't it over the next four decades the breed would slowly work its way back to the top of the tree and uh, um, we're going to take a break there and then we'll see more about that in in part two of this episode where we look at the great improvers so uh, i'd like to thank both of you for your time on this podcast and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you both again uh, fairly soon that's great andy thank you thank you very much Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.